The following message is entitled, The Marks of Superjoy Suffering, Part 18. This message was given during the evening service on November 6, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. I continue to look at the four marks of suffering that are in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, our consistent and only series right now on Sunday nights. It is the third series in 1 Peter, as I have outlined it, and the series is in reference to a joyful salvation yet in the midst of suffering. Verses 6 to 9, follow with me. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, that's a death blow, by the way, to all charismatic heresy, you love him. And though you do not see him now, second death blow to charismatic visionaries, and believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. What a marvelous passage as Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, after talking about sovereignty in verse 2, salvation verse 3, and heaven verse 4, and connecting to heaven is the power of protection that God gives us as his children in verse 5. So he set the stage. He didn't just slam us into suffering in verse 6. What he did is he prepped us. The sovereignty of God in choosing us in verse 2. The mercy of God in verse 3 in saving such a precious few that are saved. Verse 4, keeping our eyes on the inheritance with a fourfold description, imperishable, undefiled, not fading, and reserved. And then grants us one more, Peter did, the Spirit of God through him, grants us one more tool in our arsenal before we slam into the brick wall of suffering. In verse 6, we talked extensively about God's divine protection, the power of protection in verse 5. Well, we have the tools then. He sovereignly chose us before the foundations of the world in verse 2, through grace and peace. Saved us, verse 3. Gets our eyes on heaven in verse 4 and then gives us the practical daily power of protection that we need in verse 5. So now in verse 6, he hits us between the eyes with the blunt side of an axe, metaphorically, slamming us with the issue of trials and suffering. So you can see in your note sheet, we're in verse 6, Roman numeral 1, Christians are to be joyful despite trials or suffering. Letter A, we've already looked at the issue of mega joy. Greatly rejoice is one word in a Greek speaking to super joy. Not because we're suffering, it's super joy in our salvation and the inheritance that we've received. And then we're in the second part of Roman numeral 1, letter B, Christian joy is to operate in the battlefield of suffering, even though now for a little while if necessary. This raises four marks of Christian suffering. We're in number three tonight. The first one is Christian suffering is temporary. That's that phrase, even though now, for a little while. A little while refers to this life is short. The older we get, the slower we move, the more we realize how short life is. Mark number two, we've seen the necessity of suffering, and we're in mark number three, fill it in. Christian suffering is distressing. 
Christian suffering is distressing. This is where we're at currently. It says in Mark number 3, you have been distressed. Mark number 4, we might get to tonight or next Sunday night, the issue of uh, the variety of suffering. God has a variety, a treasure chest of suffering for all of us, various trials. As your note sheet says, this issue of distress under Mark number 3 is speaking of not physical torture and martyrdom, but the mental anguish which comes with trials, including these, you can write them on that purple line, sadness, sorrow, disappointment. This is what distress is, distress is referring to. It's one word in the Greek, lupethentes, you have been distressed, is one Greek verb in verse 6. You have been, you have been distressed. And this is speaking to grief, sadness, sorrow, disappointment. Under Mark number one, letter B under Mark number one, or Mark number three, excuse me, and letter B under Mark number three is good distress versus bad distress. We've already looked at that. Good distress, fill it in by way of review. Good distress is sadness over suffering, wanting it gone, but wanting God's will more. That is key. Good distress, righteous distress is sadness over suffering, wanting it gone, but wanting Christ's will more. And that can't be wrong because it's exactly what Christ asked in the garden. Take this cup from me, right? He wanted it God, but he was willing to do the Father's will. Sadness over suffering, wanting it gone, but wanting God's will more. By way of review, number two, bad sinful distress, then is sadness over suffering, wanting it gone, same thing. Sadness over suffering, wanting it gone, at all cost. That's the difference. Not caring about God's will. I want this. Out of my life, this trial, this suffering. It could be wanting the hardship of standing for Christ out of your life. You'd rather take the easier path. Or it could be never wanting to enter into suffering. Standing for Christ may cost us. We may want that cost out of our lives, standing for Christ. Or just the circumstances of life are so miserable, we want those gone. Not caring about God's will. Joy and good distress, letter C, are partners. And this morning, my allusion to Lamentations proved that fact. Uh, Jeremiah was righteous, an entire book written on grief, the grief of suffering. He had two basic issues he was crying and lamenting over. One was the destruction of his beloved nation. And secondly, the agonies and suffering that he was facing where he was facing the potential for death, preaching the word of God to uh, pagans that had renounced the Messiah many, many years ago in Israel. And yet, despite all that, he had great faith in the Lord and joy in his Messiah. Joy and good distress are partners, and you can see it in verse 6 as well. You greatly rejoice while now you are suffering. Distress, grief. So you can have grief over the trial, joy in Christ. The joy in Christ is in our salvation. The grief is over the hardship of the difficulty. Last Sunday night, we looked at letter D. That's why it's above the dotted line. The dotted line is the separation between review and new material. Letter D, joy with good distress versus anxiety and fear. Those have to be kept separate. Anxiety is believing that God has walked away from me. Um, 
and um, I'm facing frightening stuff, and God's not helping me. He's walked away from me. He's letting this situation be out of control. That is not what the stress is. Anxiety and fear, as we saw in Philippians 4, is sin. This grief is not. Letter E. Tonight we look at the difference. We've seen the difference of distress versus fear. Now we see the difference between distress versus depression. Number one under letter E. Joy with good distress is sadness. Joy with good distress is sadness while having faith in God. And waiting on God in prayer. This is what we've already learned. I told you last Sunday night, if you were here or listened remotely, that prayer is the tell. There is no other virtue, no other act of obedience you can do or not do that tells you and I so much about our Christian lives. Lack of prayer in the midst of suffering means that you don't want God's will. You're living in anxiety or fear. You just examine your prayer life. You can't be growing in faith in the midst of suffering while the prayer life is dying or dead. And as I pointed out last Sunday night, and I've done many times over the years, the, the giant instant tell on Christians in any local church, including ours, is the lack of corporate prayer, the lack of attendance of it. There's no such thing as a prayer warrior who doesn't fellowship at church in prayer. That's ridiculous. I've had somebody who used to attend here really take me to task on that. They said, I pray, uh, I pray hours every week. Why do I have to be in prayer meeting? So I said, well, that's kind of like Bible study. You can study the Bible you know, for hours at home, but never be in a church to sit under sermons. This is body life. 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 tells us you cannot function in the Christian life separate from the mandates of Scripture. And the Bible requires of us, and God requires of us, that we are together for these major issues of sermon, teaching, fellowship, prayer, communion. It's like I'm just going to have grape juice and bread at home during communion and never partake of it at church. That's sin. That's rebellion. The Acts chapter 2 foundations of any local church, any fellowship at any time in history are the breaking of bread, communion, prayer, fellowship, and the apostles' teaching. So I said to this individual years ago, I said, so you really think you can just study your Bible at home and not sit under the word of God corporately? Well, no. I said, well, then you can't use that rule for prayer. I pray a lot by myself, but not at church. This is the tell, privately and corporately, for every church and every believer. The vanquishing of prayer corporately speaks to devastated prayerlessness privately in Christians' lives. They can say otherwise, they can kick and scream and resist that all they want, but on the authority of the Word of God, it is impossible to be a growing Christian and a prayer warrior if you're not in a local prayer fellowship. Yes, exactly. You separate yourself, as Ryan said, it's like cutting off your ear, putting it on a plate and expecting it to still be healthy. You cut off any aspect of those four foundations in Acts chapter 2. Prayer, Bible study, and uh, the apostles' teaching, as it says, fellowship and uh, communion. You cut any one of those out of your life. It's rebellion. If God doesn't chastise such a person for their rebellion, then that is revelatory information that shows the person's not even saved. So under this distress versus depression, let's just understand this again from last Sunday night, number one, as you filled in. Joy with good distress is sadness while having faith in God and waiting on God in prayer. 
That's the tell. If your prayer life is growing while you're sad in a suffering situation, you are healthy spiritually. If you're sad over a situation and your prayer life is hitting the fan, you are sick spiritually. Next in number one, it is hopeful grief. It is hopeful grief. I gave you a long line for that word hopeful. Some of you were thinking that. See, I know, I know. Hey, you know, yes, it does. Just write hopeful. It's like I send some of you texts when you say you're praying, and I'll say thank you so, and I go so much. Say the same thing. If you had to do these sermon saviors over and over, year after year, week after week, your mind would wander too. So I turned and looked at that long line, and I said, Ah, who cares? Who cares? So it is hopeful grief that this is important, and depression is hopelessness. Hopelessness. Two passages I want to drive home this point. Back to Lamentations. Right near where we were this morning in Lamentations 3. I took you to Lamentations 3 this morning, 19 to 24. Lamentations 3, 19 to 24, to show you that bad stuff happens. A Rumsfeldism. As I mentioned this morning, Donald Rumsfeld said in concerning war, stuff happens, referring to collateral damage, citizens being killed. War is not pretty. The idiot uh, reporter who asked him about, you know, how could you be doing this when there are casualties of war or citizens? How could you ever have war without casualties? You think of World War II and just a blanket carpet bombing, as they call it. They didn't have guided missiles, so the B-52 would fly over Germany and just open the bay doors and just destroy everything. Think there's collateral damage in that? So bad stuff happens. That's what we looked at this morning, verses 19 to 24. He's afflicted in verse 19. The Lord is my portion, verse 24. Well, he's, got, he's, he's not struggling. In the midst of his agonies, he's not struggling. I purposely prevented us from looking at the verse before 19, which would be what? 18. So I say my strength has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Is he depressed there? Yes. What is depression? You wrote it down. Hopelessness. You say to anybody or to God, there's no hope. That's depression. Instant tell. And when we don't pray, that means we don't have hope, right? Stop praying, that means no hope. Say that's terrible. Yeah, it is terrible, but we all have had it. I've said it many times. Some of the trials Sue and I have, I've said to her, it's hopeless. It's a terrible thing to say, but I've said it. I've believed it at times, and I've had to repent of it. I've said it under my breath in other situations. Well, I at least can say I'm in good company with uh, Jeremiah. Um, verse 18. Well, what's the difference between a depressed, rebe rebellious Christian and a depressed, godly one like Jeremiah here? Well, it only took him from verse 18 in his depression to verse 24 to right the wrong. Verse 25, the Lord is good. See, when you feel that life is hopeless, God is not good. He's abandoned us. See? 
So he believes that God has abandoned him. This isn't the only time. Back in Jeremiah, Jeremiah said one of the worst slams against God you could ever say. You're like, he called God a deceptive stream in the desert. How do you like that one? You know, I'm in a desert of suffering, and I thought I was crawling toward water, and when I got there, it wasn't there. You conned me. You were a mirage. God wouldn't have any of that stupidity, so he didn't even answer him on that one. He pointed him to his mandate again and just ignored his foolishness. I think God ignores a lot of our foolishness, don't you think? Just ignores it. And we're fools when we say, like verse 18, my hope is perished. My hope from, he knows that hope comes from the Lord in verse 18. He says, my strength is perished, so is my hope. The hope from the Lord, and if it's perished, that means God has abandoned me. This is the difference between grief over suffering and depression. Grief over suffering has joy, faith, and prayer. You know when you are really sick spiritually, when you're suffering, the prayer stops, you're hopeless, and you've given up. We better get to verse 24 and repent. It's not just verse 24, it's actually verses 21 to 24. He had to recall to mind, there I, therefore I have what in verse 21? See, he got returned. It was returned. He found it in the Lord. He obviously made a decision to remember and repent in verses 20 and 21. First Thessalonians 4, since we saw the video tonight, the encouragement of prophecy, an interesting issue concerning depression, prophecy, and the lost is the rapture passage. So many today don't even believe is real. Scratch my head how many professed believers are abandoning the sheer literal understanding of the word of God concerning the rapture and the tribulation. But uh, they'll face the consequences for that. We here in our church, we hold to the firm teaching that the rapture is coming. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So notice there is grief that has hope and grief that has no hope. You see that? Grief without hope is the rest. Who are the rest who have no hope? Unsaved, yes. I'm glad nobody said backsliders. Very good. Because he's talking to brethren, we grieve with hope. We're going to see them again. This is the great hope we have as believers. If we believe we're going to see our saved loved ones again, and that's the greater miracle, why don't we have hope that God will take care of us in the lesser miracle of getting us through earth's trials right now? Again, as we learned this morning, God is always with us. He controls the stuff. There's no such thing as a believer being alone. That's a mark of hopelessness. If a believer says, I'm all alone, you're not all alone if you're a believer. You've got God living within your mind. How much closer can God get? We abandon that. So you hear unbelievers talk about, as I've mentioned before, my dear departed loved one is now manifesting in my little kitten, Fluffy. I saw how Fluffy looked at me. That's my loved one. We laughed and we're shocked at the same time, aren't we? 
They'll invent anything, anything but God, anything but true God and eternity. They're floating around here. They're around us. That's not the Bible. That's the series Supernatural. Pagan. What a bummer. It's great for the unbeliever that's alive to think their loved one's floating around right there. But what a bummer for the guy floating around right there. I mean, is that why you want to die? So you can still float around and see all the garbage going on? I don't want that. So they invent all this stuff because they have no hope. You ask them, how do you know that's the case? I just know. That's the arrogance of unbelief. With no proof, I invent my own theology and live by it. So, if you get rid of the rapture, you lose hope. Because that's what this passage is. See verse 14? The four shows continuity. It's a logical connective, as we'd say technically in Bible study. Four connects what's coming next. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus... So he's going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those that have died. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, that's the rapture, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So the falling asleep group are those that didn't make it to the rapture in verse 14. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is Christ coming back for believers, not to judge the planet. He stays in the air in verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And this is comfort to us. You have no hope and no comfort if you reject the rapture. I've told you before, I watched a 55-minute lecture on this passage from R.C. Sproul when he was alive. What a fool. Reformed guy, he, he, his only way that he can get out from under, verse 16, was he went into the military strategies of the Roman army. And how in Rome, the general waits outside the city. This is how he exegetes verse 16, because he had nothing else as a reformer. And reformers don't have anything to hang their hand on. So the general remains out here, Sproul said, oh, this is deep, this is deep. And all the citizens come out to the victor, and then they all go back into the city. Therefore, this isn't God calling his children up and going up to heaven, because that's not how a Roman victory works. Ooh, thank you so much, R.C. Sproul. You just killed my entire hope, and you based it on the strategy of a pagan army. Can't do that. You can't do that at all. That is a manipulation of the Word of God. That's what reformers do. They come along and they manipulate texts. And one of their goals is to kill my hope. How dare they want to kill my hope? My hope is in this. Any moment I'm out of this planet, any moment I'm gone, He takes us up to heaven. And by the way, we do eventually return with Him at the second coming. Just a pause in between. What comfort is there in that there is none? There is no hope of a rapture. You will live and you will die, and someday in the murky future, as amillennials will say, he'll return. You know what they turn to, reformers do, especially in America? Since there's no hope of the rapture, we better make politically this life really good. 
Work for the cause. No, thank you. That makes me depressed. So when we reject the rapture, we're lining right up with the unbelievers who have no hope. It takes the power and the teeth out of my evangelism as well. I tell pagan unbelievers, judgment's coming at any moment. I don't care if you believe it or not. Just because you don't believe in something doesn't mean it's gonna ha- not going to happen. That was a double negative. I don't think I got that right. Anyways. So I say to them, hey, he's coming back, and he's going to snatch us off the planet, and you're going to be left behind unless you get right with God. Poor reformers. Poor sad reformers. Reformed professed believers. Um, He's coming back, but way in the future, and uh, so we do the best we can down here on earth. We need a Republican back in power. Mm Mm-hmm. Conservative reformers, they just ignore it all. God wrote books that are worthless. Find a reformer who exegetes with sound, grammatical, historical translation and interpretation of the book of Revelation. You won't find it. You won't find it. Sproul comes along to Revelation and just shoves it all back to AD 70. Ah, we'll just dump all this prophecy back to AD 70. It was all, that's all reference to the general Titus, blah, 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 blah. Well, he knows now, if he was a true believer, that he was wrong. Okay? So back to verse 13. This is our hope. Those that are asleep, verse 13, a biblical euphemism for believers who die, they go to be with Jesus. And they're going to come back with him at the rapture, and we're going to meet them in the air. This is great! It's what I live for. I will not allow heretics to destroy my hope when it is so plainly in the word of God. But we're not talking about prophecy tonight. That's just a little side road that our hope is essentially different from the lost in verse 13. My point is, we as believers should have a double hope. Why are we hopeless? Why are there believers who can't take the depression? They can't get through the day. I need a drug. Why are we like that? We're not supposed to be like that. We have a double hope. He's with us and in us every moment of every day, controlling our lives. Psalm 37, the steps of a righteous one are ordained by the Lord. And then secondly, if we die, we go instantly to be with him. If we get raptured, we're instantly with him in the air. We have double hope, double hope. Christians walk around acting like pagans. I'm all alone. No one's with me. God has abandoned me. And we say it's so hopeless. How that must hurt our Savior, huh? We don't, we are not supposed to pity and pat on the head Christians who are depressed. That may sound very harsh. Don't pat them on the head. If a Christian sat in front of you and cursed God with swear words, would you do this? We'd rear back and say, how dare you, right? How could you curse God like that? When a believer expresses hopelessness, they're slandering their God. Do you understand that? 
They're not victims to be pitied. Where is God? I'm all alone. That's swearing at God again. You don't pat him on the head for that. We talk gently and firmly and we say, how dare you? The God who saved you has abandoned you? You are lying about your Savior? It is misplaced counsel. To wrap the arms around a hopeless Christian and say, Aw, aw, few more profanities, please. You're such a victim. Keep swearing. Get it all out. Mm -mm. You and I, all of us, have to face the music. Our God's never leaving us. And to feel or think any other way is blasphemy. Number two tonight, under letter E. Joy with good distress is sadness over trials while knowing that God loves us. Oh, and there's some passages I can't wait to take you to next Sunday night. just want you to fill it in. Joy with good distress is sadness over trials while knowing that God loves us. I am so sad. I'm hurting over this trial, but I am so grateful God's in control and that he always loves me. So in this sadness, I am praying, God, help me, relieve me, protect me, grant me grace to abound. Lord, this is our prayer if we're growing. It is not the prayer of the hopeless pagan. We are not alone. You are always with us. Why do we act like we're alone? Why do we stop praying to you like you're not there? As Francis Schaeffer said in that brilliant book many years ago, you are the God who is there. Oh, yes, you are. And you're in there. You're in our minds, Holy Spirit, living literally in every one of our minds as believers. That's so comforting to me. And it's convicting as well because you see all the trash. Please forgive us, Holy Spirit. We're sinners. Not excusing it, Holy Spirit. But keep us repenting. We want those minds clean so we can do your will. We repent, Lord, because we know you are the God who is there. You are in there. That's why we repent. You see it all. You see our sin. But you checked out and went to another town when we started suffering. And the longer the suffering goes, you're just living in another country now. Packed your bags and walked away. What blasphemy. May we never pity ourselves when we're depressed, Lord. May we see how evil that is. Depression is not a medical condition. It is a spiritual one. Unless, of course, I took some medicine and didn't want to kill people and kill myself. Certainly, we know, Lord, that there can be adverse reactions from medication, and that's just a sign that we need to stop taking those. But apart from that, Lord, this is a major spiritual problem in the church today. Christians despairing over getting old. We're closer than young people are to heaven. Don't like all the illnesses and the ailments. We're sad over those, Lord. Yes, we are. But you are still in control and love us. And we pray over these things. Commit them to you as the God who is there. 
will never leave us or forsake us. But you will have us suffer. Oh, yes. Why should we not have suffering when you suffered for us on earth? Are we better than the master? Is the disciple to have a superior condition than the master? Is the slave to be over the master? If you suffered, master, we will too, slaves. And you told us, you demanded of us in the Gospels to pick up our cross and follow you. What fools we are when we're shocked by suffering. It is an invitation, an opportunity to renounce the things of this world so that each day we would live in your will, not live the best day as if it's our last, but each day we would live in your will to the best of our abilities and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what you've called us to do. Not a pagan mentality and mantra like Jobs had, dear Lord. And then he dies and he's in hell. All for nothing, how tragic. We live each day not as if it's the last day, Lord. We live each day to be in your will and to fulfill your will for our lives. Because life is so short. We don't want to waste it on ourselves and the things of this world. But when we're depressed, we are living for the things of this world. We have a standard by which we expect better for our lives. This is so wrong. Jeremiah experienced it, so have we. And we will, I'm sure every one of us as believers have depression in the future, but how quickly that dog's leash must be thrown away and that dog of depression allowed to run down the street away from us. We need to get away from that depression by repenting and returning to the fact that great is your faithfulness to us. Oh, help us with this. We're so weak. I ask in Jesus' name.